Hi, this is Mav. Before we start this episode of Vox Popcast, I need to point out that we recorded this episode earlier in the week. After we recorded, there were some additional incidents that happened on the UNC campus related directly to what we're going to speak about. So towards the end of the episode, I'm going to interrupt and Katia and I will reappear from the future and kind of give you an update on things that have happened since the recording. So stay tuned and it will probably be a little jarring, but we will try to explain once we get there. All right. I now return you to this episode of Vox Popcast already in progress. I am Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And this week, Wayne is still not here. So I am with our other co-host, Katia Gorecki. Hi, Katia. Hey. Welcome back. You've been gone for a couple of weeks. It happens. <laughs> so we usually try to sort of alternate topics and not talk about the same general topic two weeks in a row. But we did a racism show last week, and this is kind of a racism show this week. But it's a little different. Today, we're going to be talking about Confederate monuments because of something that happened out there, right? Yeah. So um, as a lot of people who pay attention to national news might be aware, there's a Confederate statue on the University of North Carolina's campus in Chapel Hill that was torn down by protesters on the evening of Monday, August 28th. And there's been a lot of national coverage and conversation around it and sort of what the appropriate thing to do with Confederate monuments is generally and also and the appropriate place of protest in that conversation. Mm -hmm. So... Not something I'm an expert in, just something I have strong feelings on. Is it something you're an expert in? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we needed someone who is a little closer to the situation. And you found her, so why don't you introduce Emily? Our guest yeah. this week is uh, Emily Brennan-Moran, who's a graduate student at UNC working on commemoration and memory. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Hi, Emily. Hi, how are you all? We're good. Good. So you want to just give us a little brief overview of, you know, what does that mean when you say you're working on commemoration and memory? Like Katya said, I'm a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill in the Department of Communication. Um, and my main research is on questions of how we name the dead in commemorative context. So I've done some work on the Holocaust. Um, I've done a little bit of work on Southern memory, not specifically on Confederate monuments, but thinking about uh, memories of slavery in Charleston, mm -hmm. South Carolina, specifically. 
but I'm interested um, kind of more broadly in questions of collective memory, ethics and politics. So these are questions like and this is the reason we thought you were kind of relevant here is the biggest complaint I always see when people say, well, we need to save these statues is this statue is we have to remember these brave soldiers of the Confederacy, blah, 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 blah. So you look at stuff like that. Yes. (laughs) Wonderful. So I think you'll hopefully fit right in. So to start with, though, there's been no shortage of these stories about what to do with all these Confederate monuments. And since we're going to talk not specifically just about Silent Sam, but that's going to be our main focus. And because it's the most recent one that happened last week, and I'd never heard of it until last week when it happened. But you guys are, well, one of you is on that campus and the other is close to it. So Tell me about what is Silent Sam? Yeah, so Silent Sam is a statue of a Confederate soldier on UNC's campus. Um, it was donated to the campus by the United Daughters of the Confederacy and dedicated in 1913 and has stood on the campus ever since. Um, it stood at the kind of very northern end of campus. And when I got to UNC, one of the kind of things that I was told was that Silent Sam stood in the north to guard campus from any further northern aggression. So obviously there's a lot of lore and kind of a lot of folk tales that have been associated with Silent Sam in the 105 years that he stood on campus. So my first question is, we call it Silent Sam. So this is not a real person. Is he even like a myth beyond this random statue that is on UNC campus? It's not based on anybody, right? Right. So my understanding is that um, it was actually cast up in the north um, as part of kind of a commemorative project where a number of these statues were made mm-hmm. that were cast from the same the same model. Um, and I believe he's called Silent Sam. And Katya, you might have this more specifically because mm-hmm. I'm not a, a gun expert, but I believe he's called Silent Sam because he doesn't have a magazine in his gun. That's at least what I've heard. I don't know. If that's where the like the origin of the name. So the idea of the statue is he's supposed to he's a statue, which means he's not really guarding anything. But (laughs) symbolically, he's protecting UNC campus from the north invading and and taking over. And he's doing this with an unloaded gun. I mean, I think I think he's supposed to he's supposed to be honoring students who went to war from UNC and gave their lives for the Confederacy. That's the point of the statue. And then one of the things that people have been pointing to, specifically pointing out that not only is a Confederate monument, but in addition, when it was uh, dedicated, one of the last speakers was someone named Julian Carr, which I'll return who I'll return to in a second, um, because he's relevant also to the history of Duke's campus and some of the things that have happened since. And he gave a speech dedicating that monument, which basically talks about how he took refuge on campus when he was basically being criticized, like like, I guess, uh, after flogging an African-American woman in the streets. And so basically after doing that right in front of the campus, went onto the campus to sort of seek refuge. What a hero. Right, exactly. And so Julian (laughs) Carr, I mean, one of the things that's happened since is actually, and this is, I'm a Duke student. So this is what's been happening on campus this Monday. So one week after the statue fell, we actually have a building on campus that's uh, named after Carr on our East campus. And uh, the history department at Duke has asked that that building be renamed in solidarity with Silent Sam. Um, because one of the things that I actually didn't realize this until fairly recently, Duke's campus, the land that East campus is on, because um, if you go ever, anyone ever comes to Duke, we have like two sort of campuses that are sort of separate. East campus was actually donated by Julian Carr. So we, both campuses have this sort of connection explicitly through this person to that particular ra- racialized history, among other things. OK, so he is problematic, though he may be. 
it's fair to say that Carr is at least entrenched in the lore of both UNC and Duke. I mean, the town next to Chapel Hill is actually called Carborough, um, oh. <laughs> C-A-R-R, after Julian Carr. So I think he's entrenched kind of in the history of the research triangle and Chapel Hill and Durham. Yeah, I, wow, yeah, he's a pretty big figure in the history. And then, uh, yeah, especially a lot of the commemorate the commemorative sort of culture around North Carolina. Hmm. See, these are things that I didn't know. <laughs> OK, so as the resident black guy on the panel here, that's frightening. <laughs> Just seems scary to me. So, OK, so they so they build a statue of Silent Sam and. It's relevant this week because my understanding is, well, okay, what I know is what I've seen in the news. Mm -hmm. But so I know that it was knocked down during a protest. I don't even know what was what was the protest first? So, I mean, I want to speak. So generally, a lot of the protests over the last year have been protests as a statue periodically for decades. Um, A lot of it in the last year and has been focused on the idea of specifically providing historical context for the statue. Because one of the things, and a lot of people, there's been a lot of coverage on this. And if you look in the um, notes from our blog post, there's links to places that talk a little bit more about the history and how this has been playing out over the last decades. But for example, in the last year, back in April, an activist and graduate student, Maya Little, actually covered the statue in a mixture of paint and her own blood um, to basically talk about, to basically demonstrate sort of like this statue represents basically his, like generations of violence against African American people and is damaging to the to the camp to the campus and especially um, African American students on campus. Um, and there's also been other students who've been like I believe that this year, which thankfully didn't have to wear it this that long, there was a student that pledged to wear a noose on campus every mm-hmm. day that the statue remained standing to sort of again underscore the psychological harm that it's doing to students on campus and making them feel unwelcome. That's fascinating to me. And and again, scary, but it's interesting to me because there's obviously since Charlottesville, there's been a lot of attention on Confederate monuments in general, racist monuments in general around the country. I am lucky enough to live in the north where it is less of an issue because this was on the other side and you know, we don't have as many. We do. We don't. We have some, but we don't have as many up here. But a question for both of you. And obviously you guys are both white. So what yeah. is it like to be in the presence of statues like that at all times? Seems bizarre <laughs> just to have a constant reminder of Again, we're talking about the Civil War. We're talking about monuments to no matter how you feel about, you know, Southern pride. The very basic idea is you are commemorating not only the side that lost the war, but the side that in technical American history traitorously rebelled against the country. <laughs> well, I think um, being on UNC's campus, one of the things that, and I'm, I'm actually not from the South, I'm from Central Florida, which <laughs> wouldn't consider itself the Southern <laughs> United States. Um, Florida land. Moving up to, um, I went to college in Georgia and then now living in North Carolina. Um, one of the things that I noticed about Silent Sam and that I've seen kind of passed around on Twitter in the last week since the statue has been down is that a lot of people say that all they knew about Silent Sam, for example, when they were students, however many years ago, was there was this myth that if a virgin walked by Silent Sam, he would shoot his gun. Um, and you've never heard him shoot his gun. So, you know, finish the rest <laughs> yourself. But those were the kinds of things that people knew about Silent Sam. Um, and so there wasn't, it seemed like um, for a period of time, at least among white students at Chapel Hill, there wasn't as much acknowledgement 
of the very kind of racist history of not only this statue, but also Chapel Hill itself, um, also the Southern United States. There have been student activists working for years, for decades, um, to get mm-hmm. the statue taken down. The last year, it's been particularly prominent. Since Charlottesville happened last summer, I think there have been student activists at the statue almost every single day, if mm-hmm. not every day, um, with signs, protesting. But that's been a heightened visibility. Um, you can no longer walk by and if you're not educated on Southern history, think, well, I wonder if the gun's going to go off. I wonder if there's a virgin here because it's been it's been resignified in a lot of ways by the very hard work that these student activists have put in. But as a as a person who came up to the South, who is a white woman from Central Florida, the thing that's been most prominent to me is this kind of line between mm-hmm. remembering and forgetting that a lot of people in the South like to talk about. So it's an idea from a lot of Southerners that I've heard white Southerners that we have to keep the statue up either because if we take it down, we'll forget the sins of the past, or we have to keep the statue up to remember white heritage and civil war Confederate heritage, essentially. Um, And I think there's, there's a lot to be said about what is forgotten, what memories are being actively forgotten, and then come back to haunt these statues of white men who went off to fight for slavery, essentially. So I have a follow-up question there because there's, I mean, there's so much to unpack in what you just said. My first thought is we have a statue that by purpose was commissioned 105 years ago to commemorate the South's place for the Civil War. That's, that is absolutely a statement of fact um, from what you guys have told me. However, what I found absolutely fascinating is when you were just speaking, you talked about the way in which the symbolism of the statue changed to move away from almost racism and be at a much safer sexism of, oh, well, let's like to forget the purpose of the statue and to look at it as, hey, this is just to detect virgins. That is so <laughs> fascinating to me <laughs> because the idea, I, I mean, I'm going to presume they mean female virgins because male virgins barely exist as a concept in American mythology. Well, and I also want to make clear that I don't think for students of color, um, you know, I don't think that the connection to racism and the Civil War and to the past of slavery in the United States ever went away. I think perhaps it was it was something that white students were able to overlook um, because this is Mm -hmm. just another statue. We have other monuments on UNC's campus. We have obelisks and other things that are kind of commemorating war dead from various wars. So there's a point of luxury in being able to attach these kind of stories to a statue that stands for such a racist past. Well, that Mm -hmm. leads pretty well into my next question. This is more about your research. If you're repurposing a memory like that, if you're talking about the purpose of any monument, be they to the Confederacy or anything else. The idea is generally we are building a monument to remember um, the Lincoln Memorial, to remember Abraham Lincoln. We are building a monument to remember event X, um, whether it's a religious event, a historical event, whatever. But the idea that we're building a monument to remember something as it really wasn't, because my understanding just from, you know, from what I've read this last week and from everything that you guys both just said is that at least in theory, we're supposed to view Silent Sam as 
representative of all the great and brave men who fought for the glory of the South 160 years ago, blah, 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 blah. Correct. But that's not the actual story. That is creating a history after the fact and attributing it to the monument. And then because of the problematic view of racism, creating a second history of, or not history, mythology of sexualization to just cover up the actual myth that it was connected with to replace the history in the first place. And like you, you deal with memory. So I don't even know where to begin thinking about that. You're remembering something that didn't happen to replace your memory of something that also didn't happen because the actual thing that happened is something that you want to forget. So I think the place where I would start um, would be with the idea that collective group memory is, is always a political question. So if we're thinking about why groups choose to remember things and we think about 1913 as not immediately after the Civil War, um, but, you know, a period of time has passed here. And you think about what was going on in 1913, particularly in the South with Jim Crow um, laws and with other kind of a new kind of racist society being built in the new in the beginning of the 20th century. There is, I think, a link to identity and politics. So the United Daughters of the Confederacy and others who attended the dedication were speaking out in this material form, the form of the statue, what kind of society they wanted in the South. And part of that was what they might not, what they might not have thought was a revision, mm -hmm. but a revision of memory of the Civil War. The speech that Julian Carr gave to dedicate the statue was definitely a white supremacist speech. The text of that is maybe something we can link. Absolutely. The text for people who read, wrote the uh, read the blog this week, the text is also linked in there, but we will definitely make sure it's in the show notes. Um, so it was already absolutely a racist moment. But from a political perspective, this was a group of people in the South um, deciding what kind of white Southern narrative they were going to build for themselves going mm -hmm. forward. And that's how they chose to remember the Civil War um, as kind of this lost cause mythology. Mm -hmm. It was a romanticization. The war of northern aggression, as opposed to right, exactly. So they've built this statue, and the history of Confederate statues is very. I mean, you pointed out that this one was was fifty years after the Civil War had ended. A lot of other ones around the country went up in the nineteen sixties, fifties, and sixties. So a hundred years after the war had ended. So it, it's a repurposing of the narrative. You said revisionist history specifically for racist reasons that I mean that's not that is the historical point of creating these monuments it's the historical point of one thing I do know about the confederate flag which has a lot of controversy about it is not the confederate flag that people like to wave is not the actual flag of the confederacy because the actual flag of the confederacy or well the three flags of the confederacy are frankly kind of ugly <laughs> it is a <laughs> derivation of the virginia battle flag that is sort of elongate it to make it more flag light. But that rises to popularity a hundred years after the right. Civil War. So you're talking about the difference between a legitimate memory, and obviously everyone who was fought in the Civil War was dead by the time these statues come, come into play, but a construction of a memory. Is that a fair way of saying it? Well, and I think it gets tricky to even talk about legitimate memory, um, legitimate memory at all, because 
even immediately after the Civil War, we would have what the South Mm -hmm. thinks happened and what the North thinks happened. But I think you do make a great point that if we look at the early 20th century and then we look at the 1950s and the 1960s, those are two particular historical moments in the United States where we can see prevalent racism because of Jim Crow and then because of the civil rights Mm -hmm. movement. So we're seeing white Southern Americans um, who are acting in a political moment and they are taking memory or making memory, you might say, of the Civil War mm-hmm. for their own purposes in that moment. So I have, I, I have a question that I've been thinking about and that I think sort of starts to touch on that issue is because, so I come at this from the perspective of somebody who thinks about literature and art, which is always um, subjective, right? It's interpretive. Mm-hmm. And so I guess in your work on monuments and thinking about things uh, and, and memorials, how does like the subjectivity of say like interpreting a statue come into play in the construction of memory? Because it seems to me like we're talking about these issues of like revisionist histories and mythologizing that that subjective interpretation of art inherently makes the idea that a statue could, I guess, sort of give an accurate historical or like whatever we mean by accurate historical perspective really fraught, especially since so much of the conflict around this statue in particular, but I think many statues like it, is that it doesn't offer the full context of what the statue and the monument actually mean. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have, what I've heard on UNC's campus is you have people who say, I see the statue Mm -hmm. as representing X and other people who say, well, I see the statue as representing Y. And I think part of the impasse is that it's, you can't say one person is absolutely right. And one person is absolutely wrong. But the, maybe the question to ask, and uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know, but maybe the question to ask is which of these, which of these interpretations should we value if we're, if what we're concerned about is thinking about the past in a way right. to help us move into the future. So what kind of society do we want? And that might help us decide. And I think UNC students, to be frank, they made that decision <laughs> last week. You know, and and performances, and I, I'm teaching a performance studies class, and something that you know my students asked me about Silent Sam, and one of the things I offered was that performances of memory attach yes, themselves to these absolutely. objects. So on UNC's campus, Julian Carr's speech has attached itself to the statue, for better or for worse. You can't see it without mm-hmm. thinking about the speech. Um, seeing people with Confederate flags and white supremacists yep. who have shown up in militia gear, those performances have attached themselves to this object. Is the text of the speech, and, I, and this answer might be different this week than it was two weeks ago, but you say, you say the text of the speech is attached to the statue. How prevalent was... Well, no, no, I, I, know, I, I, know, I know you mean subjectively <laughs> yeah. figured it, but, but how prevalent was that understanding of who Carr was versus what that statue is with your, and I'm going to say average, and I'm not even sure what average means, if it means of all UNC students or your white UNC students or your black UNC students. But before two weeks ago, how prevalent was that narrative even in the in the minds of your average student? So that I honestly, I can't say specifically, you know, in the minds of the average students, but I do know that for the last year, that speech has been passed mm-hmm. around on Twitter. It's been, it's been getting a lot of airtime from student activists and 
they have been trying to make sure that people know that this was something attached. Um, a UNC historian, I believe, was one of the people who kind of pulled that speech from the archives. So, so it's not unknown. If you're yeah. on Twitter, if you're on Twitter and you're looking up Silent Sam because you're interested, yeah. okay. it's there. You're going to come across it immediately, even before. That's, yeah, that's what week. I want to know. Yeah. So, it's, if you're saying that that's not what this means, there's a willful ignorance there. Yeah, or you just haven't done the work. Yeah, and I mean, I will say, though, when you're talking about when, like, Mav, you're talking about, like, the average person, I will say, especially as somebody who's not a UNC student, um, if it wasn't for the work of activists, I mean, we probably wouldn't be talking about Julian Carr and the history of that speech and then the history of Silent Sam and what it represents in general. Um, Because when you're sort of standing in front of the statue, like me as a Duke student, somebody who, like, walks by the statue and has for four years... Uh, five years, actually, on a regular basis, because it's where my bus stop is, (laughs) there's not a lot of indication that that is part of its history. And I mean, I think that and that's part of what a lot of the conflict and why protesters are, in fact, protesting is that unless unless you did the work and unless activists were speaking out, we wouldn't know that that's what it represents. And particularly, I mean, again, going back to the idea of like, I'm a white lady, I that is a luxury that I don't have to think about that representation when that's the students on this campus every day, particularly in this political climate. mm -hmm. Well, so to step away from silent Sam slightly for a moment and, and into the general idea of, of just statues, since you talk about memory and the construction of memory, how useful is the idea of a statue as memory anyway? So I'm thinking I work at a Catholic university, a very Catholic university, mm-hmm. uh, Duquesne, and we have a statue on our campus that the students affectionately refer to as scary Jesus. The reason it is a statue of Jesus in his usual pose and maybe I should link a picture in the blog because I, because I, 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 don't, would love to see I don't know that words I can give can give justice to, I, I don't think he's intended to be scary. It's just the particular visage that this particular artist chose when they cast and sculpted the image of scary Jesus is slightly more frightening <laughs> than, than I would. It's a fire, it's a fire and brimstone Jesus. Okay. We need a visual. Yeah. No, I haven't. Yeah. It's, 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 I will, I will pause for all the listeners to Google scary Jesus Duquesne university. It is, it is just, it's an interesting take on the, the image of the Lord. Um, so to speak. Oh, no, I just looked it up. Oh, which, by the way, if you type in scary Jesus, it autofills to Duquesne University. It does. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it's, it now. Please, listeners, please Google. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's a yeah, thing. Yeah. So that's scary Jesus. Anyway. And then, scary Jesus okay. is scary. <laughs> so now, I see it. <laughs> I live in the United States of America, which, for better or worse, it is. It, it is a it is a nation where one ha- typically has an understanding of who Jesus was and what he represents to many people. So the depiction of Jesus and that particular statue aside, I, I think you get the idea of, I guess, what they were going for when they put it on a Catholic university. <laughs> but in general, with statues, I don't know if I didn't if I didn't know what Christianity 
was, or if I only knew it was a religion. If I were, if I were uh, an international student to Duquesne from a pre- predominantly Muslim country, predominantly Jewish country, predominantly a Buddhist country, and I came here and I saw that statue, it would just be a statue of a scary dude. <laughs> um, and I, and I wonder. So the idea of constructing a statue as a memory or as a marker so that we don't forget, does that ever work? Because like, because I don't know that, um, I mean, you said before, the reason I asked about the history of, of Silent Sam and how aware people are of the speech two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, is because when I walk past most monuments, Anywhere in this country, anywhere in the world. Well, actually, I shouldn't say anywhere in the world. If I'm in another country, I'm actually probably paying attention because I'm sightseeing. But if I'm randomly somewhere in America, I walk past statues when I'm jogging all the time. And I don't really stop. I don't think about mm-hmm. them. They're just statues. I don't really care. And I, and I don't know the history of them in general. Unless it's something that's so like, again, a Jesus statue, I understand because Jesus is so prominent as a cultural figure. I probably could pick up that that a statue of Robert E. Lee is a monument to the Confederacy because I know enough about what he looks like. If I didn't care, would I be able to tell what Silent Sam is? And if I don't know, then why is it a memory positive or negative of the South? If it's just auspiciously, oh, there's a weird soldier guy over there. So I think if you get close enough to read, you know, the plaques, and I I don't have the text of Mm -hmm. them right in front of me right now, but if you get close enough to read the plaques, um, it becomes clear that he's a soldier, you know, who is, whose memory, um, who is supposed to be a memory of, sorry, start again. It becomes clear that he is commemorating um, students from UNC who fought for the Confederacy. There are also some kind of bronze scenes on the on the sides of the base that are showing ideas of war and men going to war. But you're right; people walk by statues, and memory scholars have noted this that people walk by statues all the time, and that sometimes putting something in a monument mm-hmm. is a great way to get people to forget it. It offloads some of the responsibility of collective memory because now. Well, we're not going to forget because it's in a monument, right? So we don't have to actively remember. But I think with Silent Sam, if you get close enough to kind of read the dedication and look up at this statue and you don't know anything about the Civil War in the United States, your first impulse will probably be to buy into this kind of ideological message of look at these poor boys who went off to fight mm-hmm. for a noble cause and didn't come well, home. and especially I'm actually reading the text of the rereading the text of the plaques right now. I think one of the things that's interesting is like so um, is basically it it says all the things that Emily just mentioned. Um, and it talks about that erected by the daughters of the Confederacy and things like that. But one of the plaques says, and I've never actually caught this before, to the sons of the university who entered the uh, war of 1861 through 1865 in answer to the call of their country, <laughs> not specified. And whose lives taught the lesson of their great commander that duty is the sublimest word in the English language. And I think that's just really interesting because if like with Mav, you're talking about like the ideas, if you don't know the context and if you're coming without this pre like pre-existing knowledge of American history is actually, if you didn't know what the Confederacy was, you would assume that the country that they are talking about is the United States. And it sort of elides the fact that in fact, like 
by fighting for the Confederacy, they were committing treason. Well, it never says it never even said civil war. You said the war of 1861 to 65. Wow. Right. And so, I mean, it's so that I mean, going back to what Emily was talking about, the idea of forgetting is even in this even in this plaque, like it's yeah, I'd never noticed that before. Is it's like the idea that they're not even being specific about those like that, even 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 the history that it's directly talking about, like ignoring the fact that it's, of course, not even talking about the like the racism and the like slavery that was inherent in that war, but even not being forthright about what that war itself is. So the message is, I guess, that statues, monuments, and, and are used to mythologize the the mythic hero, whether you know, be they someone like you know, like Robert E. Lee or a fictional person like Silent Sam. And we're saying that it's maybe not necessarily the most effective way of actually commemorating. Emily, your quote that sometimes building a monument is the best way to make people forget something. That's that, that means a lot. So now I'm wondering if the purpose is to create a memory to create, uh, and you, you called it creating memory. I would almost say mythologizing what happens when we look at it the other way, what if we move from the general, you know, pro South, yay, rod, daughters of the Confederacy kind of thing to the way this sends a message to an othered person from whatever community, because I, I mean statues in general, but in this case, we'd be talking about African American unity pr- students primarily. So if we assume that this statue may or may not create a memory, for the random jogger who wanders by and wants to remember the Confederacy as something great. How do we look at the memory or the association that happens of having a Confederate statue lording over 18 year old freshman new to UNC who is, who is African-American and just trying to go to history class? Well, and activists, student activists um, and students of color on campus have talked about this. And that is part of their starting point is that this is something that still to this day is meant to it was meant to inspire fear then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it still inspires fear now. And because that is not the community that UNC is talking about in its mission statement, because it's not the community that we say that we want to build, Silent Sam needs to come down because it's a gathering place for white supremacists, has been historically on campus. And it also, its very message is a message of um, Mm -hmm. fear for African-American students. Um, But I think even, you know, as someone who is a white woman, um, obviously I've heard from students, but even even just looking at the statue itself, it's, it's telling UNC students that the most important and most tragic thing that's happened to our campus, the thing that deserves to be put on a pedestal right at the North entrance, because the statue is kind of right off of the sidewalk at what would be the entrance to campus. If you're walking down the main street in town and then you turn onto campus, Mm -hmm. the statue is the first memorial you're going to see. And so it's telling students that the thing worth remembering the most on this campus is that white men went and fought in the Civil War. To keep you in chains. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, and on a campus that was built predominantly by slave labor. Right. So even even someone who's not a student of color who wouldn't have that lived experience can mm-hmm. walk up to the statue, I think, and deduce that, um, understand that mm-hmm. this is the most important thing we're supposed to so remember here. 
my next question then moving on from moving on from the placement of the statue in the first place i want to start thinking about the removal of these statues and there's there's multiple ways that this has happened <laughs> across the country we've got what happened for you guys at unc which was there's a giant protest and people get fed up and they just knock it down i mean well yeah, I mean, we've also had at Duke, so we had a statue of Robert E. Lee that was mo- removed um, after uh, protesters also broke parts of the statue. I don't, I'm not, I don't recall specifically if the protesters were students or people in the community, um, but that statue was removed by a choice of the administration. That's what get at. Um, right, last year. Uh, and I mean, and, and Mav in the blog post, you brought up the, ins- the instance in Pittsburgh where I believe the city removed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want to talk about that? And this is not a Civil War memorial. We have a park that sits between the Carnegie Library and the Carnegie Museum, the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University. There's a little a small park that sits there where people go and and read and sunbathe primarily. That's what it's there for. (laughs) A lot of students hang out there. And there are since it's right next to the museum and it's right next to the library, there are many statues just sort of around this area. Some of them are historic figures. Some of them are dinosaurs. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. We have, um, not, I mean, again, Carnegie was super in the dinosaurs. Right. That's yeah, why. We are, again, we mean actual dinosaurs, not metaphorical. Yeah, I mean actual dinosaurs because it's right next to a museum. So there's a brontosaurus sitting next to that park. There's um, there. And then we also have, you know, some of them are more realistic. Some of them are less realistic. One particular statue was of musician and composer Stephen Foster. And in this statue, Stephen Foster is sort of tapping his foot and lording himself over a minstrel-esque looking black man whom he is presumably stealing music from. <laughs> it is it, it is an odd statue. And, you know, I moved here in 1992. I probably saw it the first time and thought, that's odd. And as I was saying, you sort of get to a point with statues that you learn to ignore them because I don't really pay attention to the brontosaurus when I walk by it. I didn't really pay attention to the Stephen Foster statue when I walked by it. It was just there. It is, if you stop and look at it and think about it for more than two seconds, it is rather racist because there's a white man just sort of lording it over, you know, amuse me, slave. You know, (laughs) Um, that's that's what it looks like. Not that Stephen Foster was for that purpose like that's not the message it's trying to send but that is the message that it sends and after charlottesville there was an article published in a local pittsburgh paper and it got some national traction that said something to the effect of with all the confederate monuments the most racist statue in america is here in pittsburgh and i disputed that a little bit because i've been to the south and i've seen statues that are far more racist than the stephen foster statue i have seen actual memorials to lynchings because i've been to mississippi <laughs> but but it was somewhat racist and people complained about it and eventually the city said yeah we're done with this and they took it down and it's sort of sitting in storage now you know they didn't destroy it they just removed it and it's sitting in storage Oddly enough, there are some other cities that are trying to buy it from us because they don't know what to do with it. They're saying, well, we'll put it here. So that's a that's an odd thing. But I don't know that anything was particularly won by the protesters because it's not like I don't feel as though this city suddenly became more or less racist because that Stephen Foster statue went away. 
I guarantee you, most people never noticed it before that article came out. It, it, it was just, it was tucked in a big park that people sunbathe at next to a tree or sort of behind a tree. And then once, once the article came out, I think people started wandering over and going, go, and going, Oh, what the fuck? That's, that's kind of racist. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but before that, it was just kind of there. And, you know, we celebrated as, Oh, there was an achievement. We got rid of the racist statue. And I imagine Duke feels that way about taking down the Robert E. Lee statue. And I imagine, well, maybe, maybe not. Cause I imagine people felt great about pulling down silent Sam, except for my understanding is they're putting it back. Well, some, Oh, not necessarily right yeah. there. They're putting it back somewhere in 90 days. Um, from what I read and I haven't read anything today. So if you've some, seen something more recent, but it wasn't specific. It <laughs> okay. said that he would be accorded a place of honor, I believe. Um, yeah. But so they're they're putting him back somewhere in a place of honor within yeah, 90 days. So for listeners not in North Carolina, um, I believe, I can't remember if this was before or after the Durham statue was pu- pulled down. There was, there's a law in North Carolina that basically says that Confederate monuments have like, well, discourages their removal or moving. And then if they are moved for whatever reason, usually because they're defaced, they have to be accorded an equal position of honor. So, which has been one of the complaints by administration is basically their hands are tied and they can't do anything about it, uh, which has been disputed. But that's... That's at least part of the reason why the, I think the 90 day claim is coming out. And it's not yeah, it's, you're, at least as far as I've seen uh, looking around today as well, it's not clear whether that will be on campus or not. And that's one of the I think one of the differences, correct me if I'm wrong, between the statue at UNC and the statue at, at Duke is that the law from the Historical Commission applies to correct. statues on public um, public property. And so UNC students have and this is something maybe not everybody knows. UNC students spent a year trying to go through legal means and pressuring the administration and showing up to meetings and talking to Mm -hmm. the chancellor of the system and trying to find a way to get the statue Mm -hmm. moved legally. Um, But because of this law from the historical commission, um, the UNC administration has claimed that they cannot, Mm -hmm. that they have no recourse um, to moving the statue. Right. Yeah. Duke has more, had more leeway with the Robert uh, E. Lee statue because uh, it's a private institution, so the North Carolina really has no say in what goes on on our campus. So administration, when it was defaced, um, had both the sort of agency and also the excuse because the statue would have had to been repaired to get rid of it. So at Duke, it's it's effectively just redecorating. Mm-hmm. It's not an actual state issue. Well, and I think, yeah, and Mav, I think this goes back to your question because I sort of made a noise when you said that people were happy about the removal of of our Confederate statue, which I think is true. I think students are generally, I mean, at least my understanding is the average Duke student and the average person in Durham is probably more pleased that it is gone than not. But I think because for us, it was relatively simple. Like there wasn't the same amount of like protracted discussion and controversy going on in the community that I think that there's been around Silent Sam. And I think that has sort of, both positive effects in that our statue was removed, which is the outcome that, you know, activists were working, looking for. But on the other hand, it also means that we had much less of an actual conversation about what it meant to have a Confederate monument on campus. And I think, at least from what I've seen living in Chapel Hill and spending a lot of time around UNC students, is that the difference on what's going on at on the UNC campus versus Duke is that I think there's been much more of a reckoning among the student body. I wouldn't say this is necessarily true of administration, but among the student body, much more of a reckoning of 
how that monument in particular relates to the kind of university that they want to have, as Emily addressed earlier, and then also the actual climate that exists on campus. So it's relating the representation of the statue to existing structures of racism in our community. And I, I, I don't think I would go so far as to say, like, it's better that this has taken so long to get the monument taken down. But I do think that it's it's the community has been more involved in it as a result. Right. And I think the student activists at UNC, from what I know, would say, you know, this has not solved the problems with white supremacy and with legacies of white supremacy on UNC's campus. But at the same time, um, ideology doesn't come from nowhere. And this was kind of a material, a physical representation of the ideology. It was just one physical representation, but having one down is better, mm-hmm. is better than nothing. It's a start. I think, yeah. on UNC's I mean, campus. I have a question, Emily, about uh, sort of as we're talking about like how statues get removed and when they get taken down is because I think one of the things that, I mean, I know um, administrators and especially city officials in other cases, um, depending on who's involved, often bring up like safety as a reason either for keeping the statues mm-hmm. up or bringing them down and sort of this idea that like, I mean, because as we've seen with Silent Sam, there is conflict. Like Saturday we had members of the Oath Keepers uh, organization, which I believe the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, described as an anti-government conspiracy group uh, showing up. Um, which side? Um, well, it's so uh, well, uh, another thing we'll link in the podcast notes. Um, but the, yeah, the Oath Keepers are, are a conservative group that basically is, is uh, its membership is primarily present in former law enforcement officials as well as military veterans. Okay. And they, the, the reason they're called the Oath Keepers is that the premise of the organization is that they are supposed to uphold throughout their lives the, the oath they made to protect the Constitution. The way that that manifests is not necessarily what most people would imagine when making that statement. But yeah, ten, I mean, yeah, so they are they are for the statue staying there. Confederate flags were waved. But like, so yeah, as with Silent Sam, we've seen that there's, um, there, there are real concerns about conflict breaking out. Um, some, some protesters have been arrested, uh, for getting into arguments and fights as my understanding, as well as there's accusations that on, even on the day the statue was torn down on, um, the 28th is that there were white supremacists there harassing students. And so I guess my question is like, this uh, runs the question of safety is when do, these monuments basically become dangerous. And then how do we incorporate that with how we're understanding mem- like the, the, the way that they represent memory and the ongoing sort of ideolo- ideology of our community? So that was an argument that I heard all last year um, on campus. And I mean, there were a lot of people in favor of taking the statue down from faculty groups that signed letters to student organizations, um, to activists that were kind of formed more grassroots groups. But a lot of people were talking about the public safety issue, um, that the statue had become a public safety issue. And that was one of the ways that they were trying to um, go through legal means to get the statue removed because there's some kind of provision in the historical commission's law about um, safety as being a reason why a statue can be moved. But I guess it wasn't interpreted the same way by administration. They took it to mean like actual, the statue is crumbling and so it's unsafe. So safety has been something that, that students and the others on campus have been concerned about with the statue. And I think, I mean, I think that Perhaps students of color would argue that 
you know, they, this climate of being unsafe exists for them, regardless of whether there are protesters and counter protesters around the statue. And so perhaps Silent Sam has brought some of that to light, some of the the dangers of being a person of color in the United States or in the southern United States on a daily basis. That's yeah, that, that's that's actually an interesting point that I haven't heard before. The idea that it's making the experience like it's it's the whole conflict is making the experience that other people are that some some people on campus are dealing with visible and like more firsthand, even though it's clearly not the, ex- exactly the same uh have the same magnitude, like for white students, for example, um, making that a little bit more personal. That's an, yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. Well, I think you don't, you don't need people with Confederate flags and wearing militia gear on campus to make students of color physically unsafe. So I, I don't know. I think that's the question of safety. Uh, I- so as the question of safety, I think Charlottesville is specifically a reminder of with Heather Hare in Charlottesville of what, you know, what can happen when things are unsafe? How you you mentioned that it's a meeting place for white supremacist, the you know, the physical location of the statue. Is that a prominent thing that happens? Are, are there are there rallies there frequently or anything like that? Or is it just like a hangout spot where kids buy jazz cigarettes? I don't know. <laughs> So since I've been on campus, um, and Katya, you can probably speak to this too, living in Chapel Hill, but since I've been on campus, I've seen a few incidents of people with Confederate flags showing up. And typically, as with when the statue came down and as with last Saturday, there are more, if there's a counter protest that happens or a protest among students, there are going to be more student protesters who show up than, you know, a few Mm -hmm. people with Confederate flags. I, I don't have kind of a good primer on the whole history of the statue in front of me. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speak okay. to years past. I've been at UNC for three years now. Yeah. I think that's at least, so I've been living in Chapel Hill for five years. And like, again, I like, I like, I walk past this on a regular basis, but I'm obviously not <laughs> uh, like stationed there constantly. Yeah. I think that's, that matches with my experience and my observations as well is that like periodically you will see people there. Yeah. With Confederate flags or like clearly having, a moment of like reminiscing, I guess maybe is the way to say it about the Confederacy, but it's not like, it's not necessarily like there's a, there's giant rallies on a regular basis. Um, it is like a meeting place where like a minority of people will show up on particular days. And then, yeah, particularly in the last year, a lot of it has been people coming specifically out in opposition mm-hmm. to activists um, that want the statue removed. And it's particularly, I mean, particularly in the last week. So you're saying in the last week, there's more anti and pro statue activists there than there typically are ever because of obviously with it being knocked over, that's going to be an eruption on, on both sides, I would imagine. Well, and I know, I know last year too, during football season, you had activists out there in front of the statue um, before football games and they would, and I don't know how frequently, but I know with at least, you know, there were some instances of activists being engaged um, and really racist and kind of negative mm-hmm. and even threatening ways by people who had showed up either to go to football games or how, why ever else they were on campus. So it's kind of been a year in the making, um, this particular moment, obviously more than a year because there have been decades, decades of activism, but in the last year, you've really seen 
a concentration of student activists and then people reacting against them. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the news reports keep talking about, and I actually write about this in my uh, post is like the idea that this is like, this event was basically like a flash mob of like people getting really angry and like sort of Emily, I think is highlighting correctly is like the idea is like, this has actually been a long road of people getting very frustrated. Like people, like, People are complaining like, oh, why didn't they go through the legal means? It's like, well, students did that. Students have been in conversation with administrators and largely it seems to be ignored or at least brushed off. And I think, I don't know, I mean, to go back to the idea what we were talking about earlier is like maybe even like the, the idea that when, when statues become dangerous is like this entire process and of protest and people trying to bring attention to the statue mm-hmm. and trying to inform the public about its history. I mean, this is dialogue. And mm-hmm. one of the things I talk about in my post is like this is this is what you're supposed to be having. Like, this is what students are supposed to be doing um, is they're supposed to be using. And it's actually even, even in UNC's own mission statement, they're supposed to be applying their sort of critical thinking skills to the world around them. Um, and it's really been, I think, fascinating and also inspiring to see how much that work has like shifted public opinion around this issue. And cut. So this is Mav again from the future of the episode and Emily is not here, but Katia is. Hi, Katia. Hey. So you guys are much closer to the action than I am, but the additional stuff happened, I guess, the day after we recorded what we've been listening to. Yeah. So um, Emily and I were aware that there was going to be a uh, counter protest uh, when we recorded, actually. So basically what, what uh, happened was there's this organization, which is a neo-Confederate uh, hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, called Act Back, that was planning to do a, a silent vigil at the site of Silent Sam. And there was a group of counter-protesters that came to basically protest these people coming to campus with their Confederate flags, et cetera, et cetera. So we knew that that was going to be happening. What unfolded, um, and I was present for part of the protest, but not in all of it, what unfolded was basically police separated protesters and the neo-confederate group um, with barricades at the at the protest which created kind of an interesting dynamic so wait hold on so from the pictures that i've seen this is a common situation but there were far more anti-nazi protesters than pro-nazi protesters yeah and i've seen the estimates are a little uh the estimates vary a little bit but it sounds like the people the act back and associated folks um there was somewhere between uh 50 to 70 of them showed up and, mm-hmm. and they were on one side of the street. No. So basically what they did was, so I was actually walking around the area because my bus stop is near there um, earlier in the day. So police had already set up barricades that were basically around the statue itself. So like imagine a square around a pedestal where a statue used to be. Barricades. And so what they did is it wasn't so opposite sides of the street. So what they did was actually, because um, this is basically on a campus quad, essentially. Mm-hmm. So what they did was when the Confederate group showed up, they police actually escorted them into the middle of that barricade. So there's, so basically there's, there's barricades separate there around the statue. There's barricades around them. And then all the protesters who are protesting the way the Confederate group, we're all standing outside of that. And along, along a lot of the barricades, there were also um, bicycle cops with their bikes using that as an additional wall. So they essentially set it up such that the neo-Nazi protesters were boxed in by whoever was going to show up. 
Right. Um, and so that, I mean, it, I mean, I'm sure a lot of, uh, a lot of people have seen photos of this by now, but yeah, so the, the Confederate group was, uh, escorted on and off campus by police. I mean, and one of the things to note is sort of, I mean, cause I think I've, I've seen some complaints of people like, well, why is the university allowing them to be on, on the campus at all? Um, it is a public university and state and federal law basically state that you can't prevent people from being on a university campus for issues like this. So it is technically a free speech, um, like right of the commons kind of thing, um, which is not true of a private university. Right. It's a difference between being, I mean, this, this is at, we should make it clear. This is at the UNC campus. You are at the Duke campus, which is a private university. The UNC campus is is public land and therefore completely open to constitutional rights to f- towards free speech. And then, so the reason we wanted to record this is a, that protest happened um, and other protests, other, other um, various groups uh, have been showing up on campus also met with counter protesters. Um, the reason we wanted to record this is in addition to arrests of some of the protesters, police use pepper spray on students right. on Thursday night. So, and again, this is news is still changing and coming out, but at least based on both firsthand accounts that I observe, like, first-hand accounts of people that I know, as well as what I observed. Basically, what happened was uh, the Confederate group left probably an hour after arriving. They probably they arrived around like 8 o'clock. Um, and probably by like 9, 9.30, they were being escorted off of campus back to their vehicles by police. And so basically, the ACBAC group was on their way out. And presumably, like the protests would probably start like calming down and dispersing, right? In the process, it's unclear to me when exactly the first uh, pepper spray fogger is is thrown out. My understanding is it's happening as the ACBAC group is leaving um, or shortly mm-hmm. after they actually leave. So basically, um, and I have, um, I was able to talk to some people that were sort of on the front lines, as it were, of that of the pepper spraying. And as far as at least those accounts indicate, there was yelling at the group and things like that because it is a protest. But it's unclear what exactly if there is any cause for police to throw the foggers. And even some of the, the reports I've seen from Chapel Hill police is that it was basically a crowd control tactic. So it's not even clear that there was mm-hmm. exceptional aggression or anything shown by either you know, by, uh, by any of the protesters or the students. Um, so as far as I know from the reports, uh, some either two or three pepper spray foggers were deployed as well as direct sprays in students' faces. And it was a lot. So basically I had actually left the protest about five, 10 minutes prior to the um, pepper spray being used. And when I left, um, I mean, things were tense because again, it's a meeting of two groups that don't really uh, agree on anything, but things were fine. And when I came back probably 10, 15 minutes later to come get friends who had been sprayed, you, it was uncomfortable to be on the space. It was like, it was difficult to breathe. Um, as people that had, uh, especially like breathing difficulties, asthma were having like really bad asthma attacks. Um, so it was actually, I mean, it was, it was relatively dangerous. Um, and I don't know that anyone that was present at that time was, I don't think that because of the nature of the actual foggers rather than just the direct spray, like it seems like everyone was affected. So it wasn't even directly targeting somebody mm-hmm. who was, you know, causing a problem. And then I believe uh, three, at least what I've seen is three arrests were made subsequent to that for students arrest, uh, resisting arrest. Yeah. If, if you've never, if you've never been around pepper spray before, it, it reeks 
hours later. (laughs) So if you're talking 15 minutes later, that's it's 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 a crowd control. It's a you know, it's a law enforcement and crowd control tool for a reason. It's very yeah, powerful. absolutely. Well, especially because um, right now in North Carolina, it's extremely humid and humidity makes it sort of linger even more um, potently is what I've been told. But yeah, I mean, I was walking around and basically it was yeah, it was I'm somebody with without asthma or breathing difficulties. And it was really um, it was really difficult to breathe and it was unpleasant. Do you know about so I. I've just been following it on Twitter and in the news. And I, um, do you know anything about, has anybody, did anybody end up in the hospital? I saw a couple of arrests um, were made, but, and I saw people talking about yeah. asthma attacks, but I didn't see anything. about I, medical attention. I haven't heard anything confirmed. Um, I just heard from some instructors, um, that students were talking about needing prolonged medical attention or just being unable, like needing to receive treatment, um, even not in a medical facility for hours after it. Um, so it sounds like some people, yeah, yeah were were injured pretty severely, severely, but yeah, I haven't seen any confirmation that anyone was hospitalized. So obviously, you know, as we were speaking during the bulk of the episode, tensions around this issue are obviously very tense. Mm-hmm. I mean, tensions are tense, but, um, but it, I, I mean, I guess this just shows how very real and present an issue it is. You know, we talked mostly about sort of the theoretical aspects of memories as Emily would put them. But now we're talking about, you know, the very real people are in danger purely for expressing their beliefs. I've not seen, and I, you know, I wasn't there, you weren't there when it actually happened. I've not seen any footage of anyone to include the Nazi group here being actively violent or threatening towards the, the, towards the police Um. personally. Yeah, not that maybe I, not, they were, but I've not seen any. <laughs> right, nothing that I've observed or I've seen, and I've, I mean, even some of the the footage that I've seen of, especially the direct sprays in students' fates, I think is is kind of telling. Like I've I've seen a couple of videos of students basically walking, probably five to five, you know, four or five feet from a police officer, yelling because after um, the yeah. foggers were deployed, it very quickly became, I think, like a, a more of uh, people were more upset at the police than even the act back people. Um, right. Mass hysteria at that point. Right. Um, yeah. Especially because all along through this entire process, and this is something we didn't get through the episode, um, there have been disputes between students and police, um, and especially around issues of free speech of posters being destroyed, flyers being taken down, things like that. Um, and so I think uh, there's a sentiment on the part of a lot of students that the police are actively, the police and the university are actively trying to actually prevent their free speech rights, even as they're protecting and tolerating the speech of mm-hmm. groups like ACBAC and the Oath Keepers and things like that. Which is, I mean, that is sort of, and this again is what we talked about in the episode, the purpose of what do we want the message of the university to be is sort of what the, what the protest about removing the statue was for in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now we're, we've moved past the passive you know, institutionalize, we're having a statue lord over you to direct action, which is obviously kind of concerning. Yeah. And at least as far as I've seen, um, UNC has not released an official statement regarding the pepper spraying and the, what happened on Thursday night. Um, there has been an email circulating concerning their plans, um, to relocate the statue. Um, and again, it's unclear as to where precisely, um, yeah, I, I read that it, it appears to be, I mean, I guess that was from UNC's president or provost uh, or somebody, chancellor, I believe. chancellor. And it 
I mean, they all but say they, they they say we've secured a location and they all but say undisclosed location. It doesn't actually it, it doesn't actually tell where it's going other than we want everyone's speech to matter. So we're moving the statue to a place, <laughs> which is right. Kind of odd. Right. It could, be, and, it could be more prominent. It could be less prominent. It's it's just going to move somewhere. Right. And I think especially the fact that um, they haven't addressed the fact that, um, I mean, a number of students were injured. Mm hmm. On, on their campus. Right. And I think is um, troubling, to say the least. Well, I'm glad you're safe. And, oh, and we know that Emily is safe, too. We've both spoken to her. She just had to leave town for unrelated actions, so we couldn't have her back. But you're both safe. Not necessarily all students are. So hopefully everyone's going to be OK out there. Yep. And maybe we'll follow up in the future. But if not, I just know it's an ongoing issue. And I guess we're going to now return you to the more lighthearted, regular part of the episode <laughs> to end things up. <laughs> Thanks for coming back, Katya. Well, it's, it's memory work. I mean, students are engaging in memory work. They're taking memories that haunt. So I'm really interested in haunting. They're taking memories that haunt Silent Sam and that haunt this neat narrative of these boys went to war and they gave their lives for a noble cause and they're bringing those to light. And so that's part of, I think mm -hmm. what you're seeing with the dialogue that's so fascinating is that they're telling stories that are very American stories, but that the American public don't yeah. find palatable. And I, th I think that goes for me, it goes to the mythologizing that we talked about at the beginning, the mythologizing of the hero character of the Confederate soldier. I, I I'm thinking you know, one of the problems with going through legal means to remove to remove statues, the same thing happened a couple of years ago when people were trying to get the get the flags or the Confederate flags removed from outside of okay. court buildings in, in in South Carolina. You can go through the legal means and then what happens is people, you know, an establishment votes and says, nah, we don't want to do that, <laughs> you know? um, which I guess is what happened with, you know, with every time that they've tried to remove Silent Sam. I was going to bring up before Catherine Pugh, who is the current mayor of Baltimore. They had, they had a bunch of Confederate monuments up in Baltimore for reasons that I don't understand at all because Baltimore was in the union. So I'm not sure why they were ever even built. <laughs> yeah, that's really but fascinating. She, yeah. Well, about a month after Charlottesville, she was the new mayor. She'd been the mayor of Baltimore for about a year. Um, she is a black woman. And a month after after Charlottesville, she had them removed in the middle of the night oh, with no notice to yeah, anyone. I that. Um, and mm -hmm. cited, well, it's a public safety yeah. issue. I've decided I don't want these anymore. And there was quite a bit of outrage on on that because, well, she's destroying history and she said, and she had every legal right to do so. She was the mayor. It turned out that there was no legislative need. There was no need for legislation in, in Baltimore law. So she just decided she didn't want them there. And she paid construction crews to rip them out in the middle of the night. And I, I, you know, there's a backlash there, even when the legal means is followed. So at, at the end of the day, you can hide behind the law or not. But at some point, much like the flag protest stuff that we talked about on last week's show, at some point, you just have to acknowledge that it's not so much the law. It's just a desire to maintain a racist status quo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the question of forgetting that you just that you just mentioned of taking down the statues and you know, kind of forgetting the past because the statues have come down. 
are we really going to forget <laughs> the legacies of the Civil War in the United States? Well, the South I mean, has tried. I think, <laughs> right. I think that the important legacies are being covered over by these statues and the white supremacist legacies of the Civil War are what are being covered over. So maybe taking the statues down is ripping off the Band-Aid and forcing us to remember differently. I mean, it, it certainly does. And this is something that comes up a lot on this show whenever we talk about racial issues from from last week's show about the anthem protest all the way to when we the show that we talked about something else from your area, which was the the Young Dolph incident. There is certainly division that comes whenever this country has a very complicated history with race. And whenever you address it directly, you're going to have divisiveness, particularly in the media, particularly in politics, particularly with the current president. (laughs) Um, And if, if that is called to light, if you start having this debate because people knock down a statue that we were ignoring in all the time that the statue was just being forced to be there, even if that, if the statue comes back, Probably having this debate is a good thing. Probably it's a good idea that people are arguing about it as tiring as it is just to bring attention to the fact that for the last 105 years, there have been people being terrorized by this thing and trying to move it away and being largely ignored until a week ago. Yeah, I think um, and one of the things that I think was really I think you're absolutely right, Mav. And one of the things I thought was really um, interesting is the day after the statue came down, I went and just because I wasn't at the protest on Monday, um, but I went to sort of see the statue or what remains of it. Basically, the pedestal that was its base is the only thing that's left there. Um, And it was really interesting because I saw I sort of stood there for like 15, 20 minutes and there were lots of parents that were bringing their like very young kids, like probably like preschool to like early elementary age. And like, we're basically bringing them to the statue, which by the way, like, I can't, I don't know if school has started, but like the parents, like, I, like, I think North Carolina public school has started anyway. So they're bringing their kids on a school day, um, to basically like sit them there and like talk about the history of the statue and like why protesters brought it down and like explaining to their very young children, like how this relates to race in their community. And it was really interesting because I think that that was, I'm like, this, this is in, in a way, like, I think what like one of the real victories of, of the activists that have been doing this, because it's like, this is a conversation that these people may not have had with their kids otherwise, and that they're connecting it. And even if, even if it is, it's like the, that they're connecting it to an event that's happening in their community and a moment in which, you know, students and people around them are basically saying like, this is not what Chapel Hill or UNC or whatever stands for, um, that we're going to stand for something else. And removing the statue is signaling that I think is really powerful that like people are, yeah, I think you're right, Matt, like people are engaging with it. Um, and yeah, thinking about how, how the statue really relates to, and the things it represent really relate to their actual lived experiences. Well, if nothing else, I live 500 miles away and they made me notice. Well, there you go. So the victory in, in my book, I mean, on the other hand, you know, I like to notice things like this, but. Well, I also texted you, so. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I said on last week's show, it's not, you know, we're not wizards. Racism is not going to be solved in a day and racism is not going to go away in a day. But 
each little thing that happens here is just sort of a, you know, it's, it's culture. It's moving the cultural needle and, you know, just one little tick mark and making people take notice and making people have a conversation that clearly the status quo is trying to avoid. Right. There's memory scholars. And in particular, I'm thinking about somebody named Jeffrey Olick, um, who's a sociologist who works on German memory um, in particular, but they talk about memory as unfinished um, and that the way that we engage the past changes as the cultural moment changes. And so hopefully what we're seeing here is the start of a different way of remembering um, the Civil War past and the past of slavery and the racist pasts in North Carolina. Well, Wayne's not here, so I get to use the catchphrase. So we've resolved nothing. <laughs> or have we? I don't know. Have we resolved anything? What do you guys think? Uh, probably not. <laughs> what makes it hard to talk about racism in this country is obviously there's a complicated history of this country wouldn't exist without racism. Pure and simple. This country got to where it was because... You know, we used slave labor, which was free, which made a lot of things happen. And after that, we sort of built a capitalist society based on the idea of underpaying people who were darker than other people. So, you know, racism really kind of made the country great in the first place. So when certain orange people wander around saying, make America great again, well, you know, they, they sort of have a point, I guess. Not one that I like because I'm one of those darker people who would, you know, not like to be a slave. It's a complicated history. It's hard to talk about. And I think one of the resistances, we talked about this when we talked about the idea of privilege on previous shows, one of the resistances to talking about race is at some point the conversation becomes uncomfortable because if you are a person of privilege and not just racially, but in any situation, when you think you start having to wonder, how am I complicit in this system, even if I'm doing so unintentionally? So maybe that's not what we've necessarily resolved, but what the real message of these statues is. The statues are there. So knocking them down, arguing about them, protesting in front of them, even just having people wander around with Confederate flags and Nazi flags and tiki torches and their dockers scream, screaming Jews will not replace us. I would hope, and I, no one's going to tell me because I'm sure no one who is very much in favor of these statues is really listening to this show. But I would, but I would hope that at some point there are certain people who say, I want the right to wave my Confederate flag. I want the right to celebrate my Southern heritage by worshiping Robert E. Lee. At some point, you get to a point where you say, well, this is very odd. We have on one side, everyone black and, and a lot of white people saying, we don't like this statue. And on the other side, we have me and a bunch of people chanting Nazi slogans. Am I a Nazi? <laughs> I wonder if that happens. Does anybody ever take pause by this? But because they say, wow, a whole lot of people that I don't want to I don't want to be a part of seem to be my only allies. Is this a good thing? And I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think the people that are on the side with the chanting Nazis. I'm not sure. Know that they're on the side with the chanting Nazis. It's kind of hard not to. I mean, in this case, at least the people that I've seen that are counter protesting the removal of the statute, they seem pretty aware. Well, then then maybe it's working because maybe maybe you're getting to the point where because here's what I'm wondering. What I'm wondering is, do you have your average your average Trump voter? 
not the people who are staunchly, again, screaming Jews will not replace us. Not not those people, but the people who are just like, Donald Trump says he's going to open up the mine and make America great again. I'll tell you what, you know, that guy, your 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 king of the hill voter. <laughs> Does he take a moment and say, I want to be on the right side here, but this this doesn't look right if I'm hanging out with people with swastikas. So so is there a point I mean, where, you're losing, so. yeah, where you're losing people? So if so, then maybe maybe we are resolving something hopeful. <laughs> I, I, sure. Hopeful. I like hopeful. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, even the fact that like the counter protest just uh, that I've talked about a couple of times already, the counter protest on Sunday, as far as I'm aware, only six members of the Oath Keepers came up. And I think, I mean, Emily brought this up, all of the counter protests against the sort of white supremacists, the pro-Confederacy, et cetera, et cetera, people, they've been outnumbered by not just like the dozens, but in some cases, the hundreds wow. of students. Um, and so I think like, at least in the terms of like public People's willingness to identify themselves in public as somebody who, yeah, is on the side of the people yelling the Nazi slogans with the tiki torches um, is small. And I think that's a lot of that is the work of activists and people showing up in numbers um, to discourage and basically to discourage those people and basically say, like, no, like, this is not what this community represents. And you are not like, that's not okay. And hopefully, if nothing else, um, when these things take place on college campuses, it's hopefully making mm-hmm. people between the ages of 18 and 22. So first time voters, it's making them think. People always say that students usually end up on the right side of history. It's because sooner or later, older people are going to die and the younger people are still going to be there. So, you know, maybe yeah. listen to what they feel. So, yeah. So we've resolved nothing, but things are being resolved outside of the podcast, maybe. Hopefully. Emily. Thank you for joining us. This has been great. I learned a lot. So I certainly appreciate you being here. Come back anytime. Thank you all for having me. Thanks so much. Katia, thanks for coming back, hosting again. It's always great having you here. Where can people find you? Uh, mostly nowhere. Oh, come on. You're not going to plug cool dress pictures on Instagram. Okay. Yeah. If you really want to follow me, I can be found on Instagram at, ju- at just that nerd kid, one word. Uh, but as Mav mentions, it's mainly pictures of things that I've sewn. Although now that the academic year has started back up again, if you want to follow labor union news, there's, there's some labor stuff up there. So if that's your kind of jam, (laughs) it's always great. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick. You can follow my own personal blog, which I'm going to start updating again with movie reviews real soon now. I promise things got really busy for a bit there. That's www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show at Vox Popcast on Twitter. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com. If you're a fan, please subscribe on to iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or Android or wherever the hell podcasts come from. And if you subscribe, please write us a review. As I said last week, as I say every week, writing reviews helps people find the show. We will probably mention you on the air and say thank you. It also makes us feel good because I am a sad little man who cries myself to sleep every night. So I would definitely appreciate it if you write us a review. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song that's almost a little out of place on this very somber episode of Vox Popcast. Once again, Emily, thank you for coming. I hope you come back one time and we really appreciate this. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks again, Katia. Thank you for listening at home and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.